PA Books is a production of PCN, a nonprofit television network. Listeners like you make our programming possible. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. I'm Phil Beckman. PA Books features interviews with authors of books about Pennsylvania history, culture, and people. In this episode, we follow the careers of boxing great Joe Lewis and Pittsburgh's Billy Kahn, leading up to their fight at Madison Square Garden in 1941. Our guest is Ed Groover, author of Joe Lewis vs. Billy Kahn, Boxing's Unforgettable Summer of 1941. This week on PA Books, Ed Groover, author of Joe Lewis vs. Billy Kahn. Ed Groover is the author of Joe Lewis versus Billy Kahn, Boxing's Unforgettable Summer of 1941. Why did you write this book? Um, primarily because no one else had before that. Um, you know, I was surprised when I did some research on this fight. It's such a famous fight, and I was surprised that no one had done a full-length work on, you know, the Joe Lewis-Billy Kahn um, fight of 1941. It was June 18th. And, um, you know, I thought it was a story worth telling. Uh, a lot of people consider it the greatest heavyweight championship fight ever. Um, it was certainly part of what may have been the greatest American sports summer, 1941, because in baseball you had uh, Joe DiMaggio of the Yankees, um, you know, embarking on his famed 56-game hitting streak. And at the same time you had Ted Williams of the Red Sox uh, becoming the last man to hit over 400. He batted 406 that summer. And then, you know, the pinnacle of it all was this Joe Lewis-Billy Kahn fight that took place basically on the eve for America of World War II. You know, uh, six months later, uh, the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, and then everything changed for the United States. Um, other countries at this point were already involved in the Second War, but, um, you know, this was like the last summer of normalcy for the U.S. until you know, the war ended in 45. How do you research a book like this? Were you able to talk to family members and get personal uh, reminiscences from people? Yeah, I was. Um, Tim Kahn, who wrote the foreword for the book, was a tremendous help. You know, one of the first things I did was contact him and, um, you know, was able to, he, he and I worked together on the book, you know, from start to finish. You know, I would send him um, emails or talk with him on the phone about, you know, making sure the facts are correct, you know, getting his thoughts and insight on his dad and family members. Um, you know, he watched the fight numerous times with his dad, and he was able to provide insight as to what his dad was thinking as the fight was going on, which was really valuable. And I also spoke with uh, Joe Lewis Jr., which uh, was a tremendous thing to do. Um, again, for the same reason, it was great to speak with Tim Kahn, uh, is that... Uh, you know, Joe Jr. was able to provide me with some great insight into his dad. You know, maybe things that, uh, you know, he hadn't told other people or people didn't generally know. Um, and then I also spoke with uh, some uh, boxing writers and experts, uh, boxing historians, who were able to shed some, you know, historical perspective on that particular fight and on the careers of, of both of these uh, fighters who 
are both in the Hall of Fame, the Boxing Hall of Fame, and um, are generally considered, you know, arguably uh, the greatest uh, at their respective weight classes. You know, a lot of people consider Joe Lewis the greatest heavyweight champion ever, um, and a lot of people also consider Billy Kahn the greatest light heavyweight champion ever. Um, Joe Lewis Jr. told me an interesting story that um, at his father's funeral, um, which was attended by you know a lot of celebrities, Frank Sinatra and others, and um, Muhammad Ali, who always made the claim, you know, I'm the greatest, uh, went up to Joe Jr., took him aside and said, you know, I always make those claims that I'm the greatest heavyweight ever, but is there really your dad was the greatest heavyweight champion ever? How did boxing fit into the culture of the time? And today it, it doesn't have the same cachet that it did then. Uh, well, how was it seen within the sports culture of that time? Back then, being the heavyweight champion of the world was basically the biggest title in sports. You know, I mean, this, you know, uh, predated the Super Bowl, of course, by decades. Um, pro football in the 30s and 40s wasn't what it would become in the late 50s and 60s. Um, basically, the three primary sports were boxing, um, college football, and horse racing. You know, those were the three biggies. And um, so boxing really, um, you know, dominated to a large degree, uh, the sports landscape. You know, uh, Joe Lewis fights, uh, radio being the primary medium at that time, Joe Lewis fights outdrew every other radio audience apart from uh, President FDR's uh, radio addresses. You know, FDR was the only guy who outdrew Joe Lewis on the radio. You know, the, the, the second Lewis Schmeling fight in 1938 were an international radio audience of over 100 million people. And two of the, the people listening in on that fight, because of all the, the international politics that were associated with the you know, U.S. versus Germany, um, Max Schmeling, who was not a Nazi, but was associated with that, you know, the Nazi regime, um, unfairly, I should add, because he was not uh, a member of the Nazi party at any time. But... Um, you know, uh, FDR listened to the fight in the White House. Uh, Adolf Hitler listened to the fight in Berlin. I mean, that's how big boxing was at that time. It was, you know, when you had international fights, it was kind of like a microcosm of the, the political scene that was going on worldwide. Now, Joe Lewis, of course, is very well-known, very famous. Uh, Billy Kahn, how, how is he remembered? He's remembered primarily, unfortunately, for this fight against Joe Lewis. Um, but Billy had a great career. Um, like I said, a lot of people consider him the greatest light heavyweight champion ever, along with maybe Archie Moore. Uh, and more recently, I think you could add uh, Roy Jones Jr. into that mix and, you know, perhaps uh, Michael Spinks as well, you know, discounting his knockout by Mike Tyson, which kind of shed a bad light on his career. Um, but, uh, yeah, Billy was, um, you know, a great fighter. Um, and really, uh, unfortunately, is kind of remembered most for this terrific battle he put up against uh, Joe Lewis. And uh, it's kind of a, an allegory that, you know, um, the way the fight played out, that Billy's uh, confidence uh, may have gotten the best of him. Otherwise, he, he might have pulled what probably would have been the greatest upset in boxing history to that point. Now, this period that, that you talk about in the books in the 1930s into the 40s, uh, this is a period of racial segregation. How, how did that play into uh, people with, you have African-American fighters and, and white mm -hmm. fighters? 
Yeah, that was a big thing back then. Um, uh, promoters would would go out of their way basically to arrange what they called uh, mixed race matches. You know, you would have Italians versus Irish, you know, black versus white, um, you know, in some cases uh, German versus Jew. I mean, those kind of things, um, you know, because they knew it would draw. You know, uh, in an area where Billy grew up in Pittsburgh, um, you know, there were, depending on what area of Pittsburgh you were in, you had a different race in each area. So, um, you know, those, they would bring those fighters together in these matches, these boxing matches, and they would, you know, pack the house. They would pack the arena, um, and you would have the, basically a split house, you know, half, whatever the, the case was, maybe half Irish rooting for Billy, and if he was fighting Italian fighter, then there'd be half Italians rooting for his opponent. Well, let's talk about these two fighters and kind of where they grew up. Uh, Joe Lewis, where, where was he from? He was from Alabama originally. Uh, his father was a sharecropper. Uh, when Joe was two years old, he was the seventh of eight children, born to Monroe and Lily Barrow. And when he uh, was just two years old, his father was committed to uh, what was basically like an insane asylum. Um, uh, his mother was told after a couple years that his father had died in the institution. Um, that turned out to be erroneous. He lived for another 20 years, unbeknownst to the family. Um, she remarried, and um, the person she remarried, Pat Brooks, had a large family of his own. So you had, Joe now became a part of a family that had 16 children. And it was kind of like the Brady Bunch, like times three almost, you know. And uh, they moved uh, to from Alabama to Detroit, uh, as a lot of people did at that time, because of you know they would move to the industrial Midwest because of the jobs, the factory jobs, and everything else. They could make more money doing that than they could, you know, uh, picking cotton, you know, working the fields. They say in the book that uh, before he was boxing, he was playing the violin. How did that work out yeah. for him? His mom wanted him to do that. She would pay for his violin lessons out of the whatever money she could scrape together. And, um, you know, he didn't like that at all. He would take the money that she was giving him for violin lessons and pay dues at the local gym to box. And, uh, you know, that's actually how his full name was Joe Louis Barrow. And to hide the fact that he was boxing... Uh, from his parents, he dropped the barrel and boxed under the name Joe Lewis so that if they happened to read in the next day newspaper that, you know, uh, in these amateur fights that that Joe Lewis won, they didn't, you know, maybe connect it to the fact that it was actually him because he had dropped the barrel. Now you say in the book that Joe Lewis would rather have been playing baseball. Yeah, he was a big baseball guy. He loved baseball. Um, was almost talked into uh, by Gus Greenley, who was the uh, owner of the, the famed Pittsburgh Crawfords Negro League team. Uh, he wanted Joe to start a Negro League franchise in Detroit. And Joe almost did it, but was talked out of it by some advisors because at the same time, he owned a softball team that uh, was you know, kind of hemorrhaging money. And they thought, this is not a good investment for you to get into the baseball side of it. But... Um, you know, he growing up in Detroit, he would go to watch uh, Detroit Stars games. They were the Negro League team. So he would see people like uh, Satchel Paige, Josh Gibson, you know, Cool Papa Bell, 
all these great Negro League stars who went on to become Hall of Famers. And then he would also go to uh, watch uh, Detroit Tiger games in the American League. So he would see Hank Greenberg and Mickey Cochran. And, and he's, so he had like kind of like the best of both worlds because baseball was segregated, of course. So he could see the great black players in the Negro Leagues and, you know, the great white players in the major leagues. How did he discover boxing? Uh, by accident, actually. He, um, you know, did some sparring in a local gym and uh, actually, uh, you know, did fairly well against a very uh, experienced fighter, far more experienced than he was at the time. And the fighters told him that, you know, look, you, you know, you've got a heck of a punch there. You really should put that violin down and, you know, see if you can make some money doing this. Because there was no money, you know, in, you know, playing the violin for him at that time. Um, but he could make money what they called uh, uh, merchandise checks. So if, uh, if he would box in local tournaments, he might get anywhere from like 5 to $25 merchandise checks, which went a long way at that time to you know, help his family put food on the table. And the period we're talking about is the Great Depression, right? Exactly, yes. Well, let's talk about Billy Kahn. Where did he grow up? Grew up in Pittsburgh. Uh, lived in Pittsburgh his entire life. Never moved out of the area. Uh, was close friends with uh, Art Rooney, uh, the Steelers' owner. Um, Really, in the late 30s, when Billy was light heavyweight champion, um, he kind of just like owned Pittsburgh. I mean, he was like the man in Pittsburgh, not only in Pittsburgh sports, but I mean, everybody knew him. Um, you know, his career was based out of Pittsburgh. He had a lot of fights there. And, um, you know, he was a Pittsburgh guy through and through. You know, he was known as a boxer, but um, as this particular fight showed that he was also a guy who, you know, could step up and punch when he needed to and would go for a knockout when he needed to. Um, but, yeah, he and his brother Jackie uh, were both boxers. And, uh, you know, from Billy would say that from the time he was young, you know, fighting was all he really wanted to do. No interest in school. You know, eventually dropped out of school. Um, and, uh, you know, he would say that, you know, he had, he started fighting in back alleys and had to graduate to fighting in the streets of Pittsburgh. It was like a progression. And then from the streets, he went into local gyms and, you know, began fighting there. But he never fought as an amateur. Um, when he started training with Johnny Ray, uh, who's a, 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 another Pittsburgh guy and a, a Pittsburgh uh, well-known trainer in that area, um, they, they fought only for money. You know, Johnny would tell him, you know, we don't need a tin watch. You know, you need to, we need, we want to make money right from the start. So Billy's career at the start was kind of spotty. Um, but that was only because he was fighting more experienced boxers. So um, <clears throat> what kind of training would these two men have had as they were, as they were coming of age? Uh, what was it, what would it have been like to be in the gym and training during that period? Um, busy. Uh, you know, boxing gyms back then were, you know, almost overflowing with fighters uh, because, it, uh, you know, it was during the Great Depression. And it was seen as a way out uh, and a way to make some uh, quick money and some, if you get good enough, serious money. Um, you know, but uh, they both had to prove themselves. Uh, you know, Joe 
eventually, uh, he did fight as an amateur, uh, won Golden Gloves tournaments in and around Detroit, went national with the Golden Gloves, uh, went national with the AAU, was an AAU champion before he turned pro. And, um, you know, it was basically, like Billy said, it was a school of hard knocks. You know, they learned, it was on-the-job training. And, um, you know, you had to prove yourself in the gym every day. And uh, that's what Billy did. Um, he was, he was kind of small and thin when he was younger. So the older boys in the gym, the bigger boys, would kind of like push him to the side and say, you know, this isn't for you or what have you. And Billy would always stand up and say, hey, you know, give me a couple minutes in the ring and I'll show you what I can do. And finally Johnny Ray said, okay, let's see what you can do. He put him in the ring with a more experienced fighter and, you know, the kid couldn't lay a hand on Billy. You know, couldn't lay a glove on him. And Billy, and from that point on, Johnny Ray was like, you know, this boy something special. Who was John Roxborough? <clears throat> He was one of um, Joe Lewis's co-owners, um, along with Julian Black. Um, he was, uh, they were both reputed racketeers in the Midwest. Um, Roxborough was also a real estate agent. And he had a stable of fighters, as did Julian Black. Um, Roxborough was from Detroit. Black was from Chicago. But they knew each other. They were business associates. And uh, Roxborough would take under his wing uh, black fighters in the Detroit area. And um, not only for uh, sports, but he would get them into colleges, you know, if that was the direction they wanted to go and if they could qualify. And um, so he and uh, Black became Joe's um, co-managers. And they hired Jack Blackburn to be his trainer and Blackburn, at that point, had already coached or helped coach uh, at least three fighters to world titles. They were all white fighters. And so Blackburn, um, who was a, had a black man and had been a very good fighter in his own right, um, was skeptical, skeptical about taking on Lewis because he didn't think that a black fighter would going to get an opportunity anytime soon to fight for the title. Uh, Blackburn had been a contemporary of the first black heavyweight champion, Jack Johnson, who was champion from 1908 to 1915. And Johnson's antics in and out of the ring, uh, basically kind of like thumbing his nose at white America at that time, had so angered the public and so scared all promoters that uh, a mixed race match for the heavyweight title was not allowed again until Joe Lewis fought Jimmy Braddock, uh, the famed Cinderella man, in 1937. So from 1915 to 37, a span of 22 years, over three def decades, uh, no black man was allowed to fight for the heavyweight title. So Blackburn was skeptical at taking on Lewis because he said, you know, you can only go so far. You know, they're not going to let a black man fight for the title. But, um, you know, he agreed to take him on and uh, basically molded him into becoming a great champion. And uh, Blackburn today is considered arguably the greatest trainer in boxing history, which, you know, says a lot when you consider people like Angelo Dundee, Ray Arcel, Customato. Um, Blackburn, he's in the Hall of Fame, and he's considered the top trainer of all time. What kind of a relationship did he have with Jim Lewis? Were they close? They were very close. Uh, 
Joe considered him to be a father figure, a close friend, and a trainer. So he was like a three-in-one combination, Joe said in his, in his autobiography. Um, they called each other Chappie. That was a uh, nickname they had for one another. Um, and uh, Blackburn was a tough guy. He was a disciplinarian. He had spent time in prison, did five years in prison on a murder rap, uh, was um, let go on, um, you know, for good behavior. And because he became friends with the warden, he would teach the warden's boys uh, the finer points of boxing. And, um, but, you know, he had, he had a long scar on his face from, uh, you know, a barroom brawl. Uh, I guess it was a liquor bottle that cut him. And he was, uh, you know, he had a weakness for alcohol, which, you know, hurt him at times because it left him in very dark moods. But he and Lewis got along very well. Lewis never really questioned anything that Blackburn told him. Uh, followed his instructions to to the letter. Um, Blackburn, you know, took a very raw talent that Lewis was and molded him into this, uh, basically what people considered an almost indestructible fighting machine. You know, Lewis could box and punch. He kind of combined the best talents of the fighters who had come before him. Um, and, um, you know, Blackburn was also a great strategist. You know, he would study Lewis's opponents in person prior to, you know, the fight against Joe and would, you know, diagnose their strengths and weaknesses and, and come back and put together a fight plan for Lewis. And they would follow it and, you know, it worked. It was hugely successful. I mean, Lewis only lost once during his career prior to his comeback, and that was... Um, against Max Schmeling in 36, that was considered a huge upset. But during the fight, Blackburn could diagnose what, what uh, opponents were trying to do to Lewis um, and make adjustments. The only time it didn't work was the first Schmeling fight. Now, Billy Kahn also had people in his life who were helping him along the way. One of those was Johnny Ray. Yeah, Johnny Ray, um, like Jack Blackburn was a boxer. Uh, Blackburn had fought as a lightweight. Ray was a featherweight. And Ray, similar to Blackburn, also had a weakness for the bottle. Um, he was uh, given to moonshine whiskey. So Billy Kahn uh, called him Moon for short. That was his nickname for uh, Johnny Ray. <clears throat> but Billy would always say that Johnny Ray knew more drunk than most people do sober about boxing. And, um, you know, contrary to the, the relationship that Joe had with Jack Blackburn, Billy and Johnny Ray argued a lot. You know, they, would, they had kind of a contentious relationship, but it, it was still very, uh, like, very much like father and son. But they argued a lot more than I think Joe and Jack Blackburn did. But Johnny was a, a tremendous boxer in his own right. He was never stopped in a career that... Uh, spanned years and uh, numerous fights, over 100 fights, I believe. And, um, you know, it was, it was a, a strategist, maybe not to, to the extent that Blackburn was, but a good strategist in his own right. And, you know, there's, there are some 
um, feelings about whether Billy made Johnny Ray or Johnny Ray made Billy, but I think it was a two-way street. I think they, they helped each other out. Now, you also mentioned in the book that uh, Billy Kahn worked in the corner of Joe, Joe mm -hmm. Lewis's corner during a fight when he was in Pittsburgh. Talk yeah. about that. Yeah, uh, Billy was uh, 17 at the time. Joe came to Pittsburgh, uh, one of his early fights, one of his early pro fights, and Billy worked, uh, you know, what they called the spit bucket, you know, in between rounds. Uh, when the fighters, you know, wash out their mouth before they get the mouthpiece back in, that was Billy's job of working the corner that night. And, uh, you know, he liked Joe, um, took immediate liking to him. Um, and, you know, the, the feeling was, was uh, Joe liked Billy as well. And it's kind of ironic that, you know, um, several years after this fight, they would then, you know, their next meeting would be for the heavyweight championship. Now, another figure in Billy Kahn's life was Freddie Fierro. Yeah, it was his, he was uh, his trainer. Uh, Johnny Ray brought him in. Um, prior to Billy's fight with Emilio Bettina for the light heavyweight championship, that was the first time he brought him in because uh, Johnny thought that Billy needed Freddie's expertise about, you know, how to beat Emilio. Emilio was a southpaw, and southpaw fighters give what they call orthodox fighters trouble because an orthodox fighter leads with his left hand, southpaw fighter leads with his right. So that reversal can give fighters problems. Um, so they brought, uh, Johnny brought Freddie Firo in to work with Billy on this, you know, how to deal with the southpaw and also, you know, to help him with develop more punching power. Um, so at the first meeting, um, Freddie was kind of a heavy set fellow and um, Billy would refer to him as fat. He'd say, hiya fat, how you doing? And Freddie was like, you know, what's all this fat stuff you're talking about? And Billy's was, Billy was a very cocky, very confident guy, you know, spoke his mind. He said, I don't know, you just kind of look fat to me, that's all. Uh, what, what kind of style did each of these boxers have in the ring? You, you mentioned that Billy Kahn liked to insult his opponents. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he was a talker. Uh, Freddie Fierro said once that nobody could cuss like Billy Kahn, especially in the ring. Um, you know, he was... A, he was an interesting guy because he was, you know, kind of like Hollywood handsome. I mean, he didn't look like a fighter. Uh, he actually made a movie of his own life and starred in it. It's called The Pittsburgh Kid. And, um, you know, he, he was uh, like a, the glamour boy of boxing, you know, very good looking guy. Uh, you know, uh, they say men adored him and, or men admired him and ladies adored him. That's basically how it was. Uh, his style was, uh, he was a boxer. You know, he wasn't very big even by light heavy standards. Um, light heavyweight limit is 175 pounds. You know, Billy might weigh anywhere from, you know, 168, 169 to, you know, 175. Um, his best work, ironically, might have been when he was a middleweight. A lot of boxing historians feel that Billy was best at the middleweight level uh, before turning light heavy. Um, but he was a boxer who could punch uh, when needed, and Joe Lewis was a puncher who could box when needed. You know, Lewis could knock you out in the first round, as he did to several of his opponents, or he could outbox you over 15 rounds. 
you know, sometimes it depended on what, what mood he was in. You know, there were times he's, he would tell his cornermen, you know, this fight goes one round tonight. Didn't matter who he was fighting. He said, I'm, you know, I'm going to end it in the first round. And he'd go out and knock the guy out in the first round. If you were standing in the ring with Joe Lewis, what would you see? A uh, pretty fearsome fighter. He had this deadpan stare that literally scared opponents. Um, he was kind of like, he was an intimidator, maybe without trying to be, you know, but he intimidated opponents in a manner that, you know, Sonny Liston intimidated opponents. Uh, Mike Tyson intimidated opponents. Theirs was more calculated. Lewis was just intimidating without trying to be intimidating. Uh, opponents talked often about his, his deadpan stare that he had in the ring and, you know, this expressionless mask that he wore all the time. And the fact that, you know, he carried dynamite in both gloves. I mean, he could knock you out with the left hand, he could knock you out with the right hand. You know, some fighters, are, it's, either, it's either or, you know. With Lewis, it was both, which made him, you know, doubly dangerous. And uh, he was always in condition, you, you know, he didn't wear out. Um, you know, he could, like I said, he could box 15 rounds at a quick pace without, you know, really tiring. Um, so he seemingly had, you know, little to no weaknesses. We'll be back in a moment with the PA Books podcast. Enjoying this podcast? Please support PCN with a donation at PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support. Now, at the beginning of one of your chapters, you asked the question, what would it feel like to get hit by Joe Lewis? Did his opponents ever tell us what it felt like? Yeah. Um, uh, they all, you know, they all did. Um, one opponent um, said it was, well, Jimmy Braddock said it was like getting a uh, light bulb shoved in your face and having it break. You know, the, the, the um, others said it was like getting hit with a sledgehammer. Um, uh, one of his opponents said that uh, he thought half his head had been blown off when Lewis connected with the right hand, you know, and he had to, he took his glove and like felt for his head to make sure it was like still connected. Um, but, you know, they were, um, you know, and even Billy said, Billy Kahn said, you know, Lewis punches you numb. That was the word he used, they numb, that every blow that he lands hurts. Now, as Joe Lewis is developing as a boxer, he's fighting a lot of different people. When did he first have his first big fight that everybody noticed? Yeah, his first big fight was in 1935. He fought Primo Carnera, who was a um, former heavyweight champion uh, from Italy. He was touted um, as a symbol of Italian strength by uh, Italy's dictator, uh, Benito Mussolini. And so you had this fight of international uh, scale because you had, you know, uh, the Italians at that point, because of Mussolini, were getting involved in, you know, skirmishes around the country. Uh, one of them involved the Ethiopians. So we had this fight where, you know, Joe Lewis was seen as the, because of, he was black, you know, uh, was seen as the, symbol of Ethiopians or black people, and Primo Carnera was seen as a symbol of Italy and fascism. And um, there was, 
protests to the point where they actually almost called the fight off. It was being held in New York, in Yankee Stadium. Uh, but they decided to let the fight go on. And that was really the first big fight that Lewis had. It was also his first fight in New York City, in Yankee Stadium. And uh, Carnier was a huge guy. He was like 6'6", 250 pounds. Um, so he kind of dwarfed Lewis, who was 6'2", you know, 202 pounds. Um, but, you know, Lewis was the better fighter, and he stopped Carnier in six rounds. Now, Billy Kahn was also fighting early on in his career, mostly in the Pittsburgh area. At some point, though, he gets invited to go to New York City. Mm -hmm. uh, how did that happen? He was, uh, because of his record, he, you know, he was, as you say, you know, making a name for himself in places other than New York City. And New York boxing at that time was controlled by Mike Jacobs, who was a promoter. He was the successor to Tex Rickard, who had been the top promoter in the sport from, you know, 1910 through uh, the late 20s. Rickard had promoted Jack Johnson's fights. Uh, he had promoted Jack Dempsey's fights. Uh, he was responsible for what they called these fights of the century. Uh, the first was 1910 when Jack Johnson fought James J. Jeffries in a mixed race match. Uh, both claimed um, rights to the heavyweight title. Johnson was the current champion. He had defeated Tommy Burns in Australia in two years prior, 1908. James J. Jeffries had retired as undefeated champion prior to that, so he had never been defeated in the ring. So people still considered him to be the heavyweight champion. So, but he was, you know, uh, deep into retirement when they arranged for this match. And it was basically a, a match that was arranged because, um, you know, white America was upset that there was a black heavyweight champion. And they said, this, this can't be. You know, we have to bring James, Jim Jeffries out of retirement to reclaim the crown from uh, Jack Johnson. And one of the leading proponents of this was the famous writer Jack London, who was a sports writer at that time, um, later on to become a, an author. And he was one of the people spearheading this movement to bring uh, Jim Jeffries out of retirement to reclaim the stature of the white race in boxing. So Ricker was involved in that. Uh, he was involved in the Dempsey Tunney million dollar fights, the Dempsey Carpentier fight of the century. And um, so Mike Jacobs followed up and was the successor to Tex Rickard. And, um, you know, someone brought Billy to Mike Jacobs' attention and said, you know, there's this kid. He's a crowd favorite. He'll put, you know, people in the seats here in New York in the garden. And, um, you know, let's sign him to a fight. So they did. And, you know, the crowds loved him. I mean, he had this this magnetism, this style that, you know, people really enjoyed watching. You know, as I said, he was a, a handsome guy um, who was a tremendous boxer. And, um, you know, people liked his style. They liked the way he fight or he fought. He was, uh, you know, he kind of would play to the crowd. You know, he's always kind of like smiling and smirking and, you know, he talking to his opponents, and at that time they had, the ring microphones were like hanging out not too far above the ring itself. So you would have Billy 
and his opponent engaging in these conversations while they were fighting. And usually it was, you know, some pretty strong words on both sides. But the crowds loved it. You know, they loved when the two fighters were, you know, insulting each other or, or you know, if it was a, a match between Billy, you know, an Irishman and Bettina, uh, an Italian, you know, they, the, the insults that they were hurling back weren't politically correct, especially, you know, especially looking back now, but crowds loved it. And uh, Mike Jacobs, uh, uh, he was called Uncle Mike by the, the fighters uh, that he promoted, but he was never really close to many of them. Even Joe Lewis, uh, whose fights he promoted, they weren't that close, but Mike Jacobs fell in love with Billy Kahn. And he was like, you know, he would sit ringside, which he never did for any other fighter, and cheer on Billy, you know, right from the, uh, right from the ringside that, uh, you know, Billy was his guy. Now, for Joe Lewis, uh, another big fight on his way to eventually become heavyweight champion was with Max Bear. Mm -hmm. What happened there? Uh, Max Bear was another former champ. You know, you had the string of former champs when Lewis was coming up. Um, who uh, were brought in as name opponents for Joe. They were still good fighters, uh, but they weren't of his caliber. Um, and Max Baer was uh, considered by many to be the hardest hitting heavyweight since Dempsey. Uh, in fact, Dempsey often worked Baer's corner. The two men were close. Uh, Baer idolized Dempsey and Dempsey saw some of himself in Max Baer because he could hit so hard. And um, so they signed for this fight in Yankee Stadium. And uh, Bear, unfortunately, had hand injuries that um, were costing him a lot of his punching power. In fact, he wanted to call the fight off um, because his hand, the night of the fight, was throbbing so much that it was causing him so much pain. And Dempsey said, look, there are 95,000 people in Yankee Stadium right now. You can't call the fight offs. He's there, you either fight Lewis in the ring or you fight me in the dressing room right now. So Bear, you know, went out, he, he got some Novocaine shots in his hand, went out and, um, you know, Lewis dominated the fight. It only went four rounds. Um, but Bear had never been knocked down prior to facing Lewis. Uh, Joe dropped him in the third round, uh, stopped him again, then dropped him again in the fourth and Bear was on one knee when he took the count, and people didn't like that at all. They were screaming for him to get up. And um, Bear said later that, you know, yeah, I could have gotten up, but, you know, if people are going to pay to watch me get executed, they're going to have to do, pay more than $25 a seat for it. Now, Joe Lewis would also fight Max Schmeling. What was significant about that fight? Uh, they fought twice, and initially the first fight in 36 followed the Bear fight, that Lewis had. And, um, you know, at that point, Schmeling was a former champ and he was seen as just more, you know, another name opponent for Lewis, really nothing more than that. No one expected Schmeling to win. Schmeling, to his credit, studied films of Lewis and realized that Joe had a weakness of when he would throw his left jab, when he pulled it back, he pulled it back low, meaning that Schmeling saw that he could counter Lewis's left with an overhand right. And Schmeling being a counterpuncher, that worked to his strength. And Schmeling even tipped off to 
sports writers when he arrived in New York from Germany that, you know, I see something in Lewis's films, you know, and they were like, it doesn't matter, you know, Lewis is knocking everybody cold, he's, he's going to destroy this guy, just like he did Carnera and Bear. And uh, in the fourth round, Schmeling tags Lewis and knocks him down, first time Joe's been dropped in his career, ring, uh, pro career. And uh, Joe gets up, uh, and at the end of the fifth round, the bell sounds, and just as it's sounding, Schmeling tags Lewis again with another hard right. And a lot of people started crying foul, you know, that that should have been, Schmeling should have been DQ'd for that. Um, but it was so close to the bell that it really couldn't de you know, disqualify him for that. But he, uh, the, the blow at the end of the fifth and the blow in the fourth really left Lewis dazed for the remainder of the fight. Um, and Schmeling just continued to pound him for the next uh, seven rounds. Finally, it was a scheduled 15-round fight. He knocked Joe down again in the 12th, and this time Lewis didn't get up. And Joe's mother, Lily Barrow, was in the Yankee Stadium crowd that night, and she... Uh, had a hysterical crying fit because of the beating her son was taking. She started screaming, "My God, they're gonna—you know—he's gonna get killed." She had to be escorted out of the out of the stadium. And uh, Joe was in such a state that he didn't even remember the knockout. He didn't remember being helped back to his corner or being helped back to the dressing room afterward. At what point does Joe Lewis become heavyweight champion? Becomes heavyweight champion a year later. Um, Jimmy Braddock who uh, was called the Cinderella Man uh, for his, you know, rags-to-riches life story. He had defeated Max Baer in a huge upset in 35, 1935. And Braddock, uh, as made famous by the movie The Cinderella Man, uh, Russell Crowe plays Jimmy Braddock, um, he, he was a guy who knew bread lines you know, he knew soup lines of the Great Depression. He was, he was a good boxer, wasn't a great fighter. Um, so he had to supplement his income in other ways, working in factories and, you know, a lot of blue-collar jobs. And he knew hard times. And when he won the title from Bear in his huge upset, he sat on it because he just, you know, he wasn't going to risk losing, you know, losing it that quickly. So he waited a couple of years, and his first defense was against Joe Lewis. And that fight came about because um, they had some intense negotiations between the two camps. Um, Braddock at the time was also being called upon to defend against Schmeling, because Schmeling, virtuous victory over Lewis, was considered the top challenger. But because of the, the situation with Nazi Germany, uh, American Boxing people were concerned that if Schmeling beat Braddock, which was a very real possibility, he would take the title back to Germany and that would be it. You know, you'd never see it again, at least for the duration of the war. Um, so they negotiated with Joe Lewis's camp and Braddock only agreed to fight Lewis when a deal was worked out that he would gain a percentage of every Lewis fight after that. So every time Joe Lewis fought, Jimmy Braddock made money. 
So that's what got him into the ring with Lewis. I think Braddock kind of knew that, you know, Lewis being Lewis, that this was going to be his one and only title defense. And um, so they fought in Chicago. And um, Braddock, to the surprise of many, knocked Lewis down in the first round. Uh, Lewis got up and, um, you know, proceeded over the next seven rounds to just, you know, basically wear down Jimmy Braddock with hard punches. But uh, Jack Blackburn in the corner kept cautioning him. You know, Blackburn or uh, Braddock's a tough guy. You know, don't um, get over anxious because, you know, he's strong, he's durable, you know, um, he's not really afraid of you. So, um, you know, take your time, wait for your openings, and then, you know, because Braddock was so much older than Lewis, Blackburn's advice was just, you know, let him wear down. And by the eighth round, Lewis saw his opening and, Brad and uh, Blackburn said, you know, okay, you know, time to take him out. And he knocked Braddock down, uh, hit Jimmy Braddock so hard that he kind of corkscrewed him into the canvas. If you see the film of the fight, uh, Lewis hits him with a right hand that spins Jimmy Braddock almost in a circle. It was so hard. And um, he falls face down and it took his handlers a full two minutes to revive him. Now, Billy Kahn became the light heavyweight champion. How did he end up in the ring with the heavyweight champion, Joe Lewis? Um, basically money. You know, Billy won the light heavyweight title. Um, but the glamour positions, or the glamour divisions in boxing are the heavyweight division, the middleweight division, and the welterweight division. Light heavyweight is kind of like lost in the shuffle because between the, the middleweight and heavyweight divisions, and there's not a lot of money to be made as light heavy champion. That's why I see a lot of light heavy champs through the years taking on the heavyweight champ. And, um, you know, Billy beat Emilio Bettina to win the light heavy title in 39, uh, defended it against uh, Bettina, and then defended it two more times against Gus Lesnovich, and then realized, you know, I can make more money fighting heavyweights. And Billy also thought, you know, heavyweights are big, slow guys. You know, I'm a quick guy. I can outbox these guys pretty easily. So he went on a string of fighting heavyweight contenders. And uh, two of the more prominent ones were Bob Pastor and um, uh, well, one of the more prominent ones was Bob Pastor. And Pastor had twice fought Lewis and given him problems both times. Now, the first time was a 10-round decision that was close. Uh, the second time, uh, Lewis knocked him out in the 11th round. But both times, Pastor had given Joe some difficulties. Khan fought P Pastor and knocked him out in the 13th round and said afterward, you know, hey, it took Joe Lewis 21 rounds over two fights to beat this guy, to, you know, to knock him out. And I did it in 13 rounds. You know, who says I can't punch? You know, I'm doing things that Joe Lewis can't do. So Billy, you know, campaigned for this title shot against Lewis, you know, because he, he fought his way through the heavyweight division. And really, you know, Lewis had been doing the same thing. So it came down to the point where there was no one left for either one of them to fight except each other. What was the Blackburn crouch? Uh, a style taught by Jack Blackburn to all of his fighters. Uh, some of the more prominent ones, of course, are Joe Lewis, 
Sugar Ray Robinson. He was never Sugar Ray's trainer, but Sugar Ray and Joe were close friends, and Robinson would spend a lot of time at Joe's camps and would spend a lot of time around Jack Blackburn picking up uh, advice and tips on boxing. And so the Blackburn Crouch is uh, where you are, uh, you're a stand-up straight fighter, but you're crouched slightly forward at the waist. Uh, left arm uh, partially extended if you're an orthodox fighter, uh, where you lead with your left, and your right hand cocked by your chin. Um, so basically what it does is that it eliminates or cuts down the opportunity or the space for your opponent to land punches against you because of the crouch and because of the upraised shoulder, left shoulder if you're orthodox, right shoulder if you're southpaw. And it keeps the two hands um, uh, close to the chin and ready to punch at any time. Now, uh, once they're in, in the ring together and they're fighting, what, what is each boxer's strategy? Um, Khan's strategy was to survive the first couple of rounds and then just outbox Joe. It was a 15-round fight. All fights back then were scheduled for 15 rounds, championship fights. Um, Lewis's strategy was to take him out quickly. He was a bigger guy, hit harder, and he knew that Billy was a tremendous boxer. He had seen Billy box, and, you know, Khan had been in attendance at Lewis' fight, so he knew how hard he hit. And the other thing about Billy was that he had a slow heartbeat, so it took him a couple of rounds to warm up. Um, kind of like another famous athlete, Bjorn Borg, tennis champion, had a slow heartbeat and would invariably lose, like, say, the first set, sometimes the first two sets of a tournament match and then rallied to win the final three and win the match. Billy was like that in boxing. He would lose the first couple rounds, sometimes more. In his rematch with Bettina, Billy, by his own admission, lost the first six rounds of the fight and said that later that you know he picked it up in the seventh and that boxing the rest of the way and got the decision. But um, you know a slow start against Lewis could be disastrous because of Joe's power and because of the you know, the number of first, second round knockouts on his ring record. So he, his plan was to stay away for the first couple of rounds, you know, until he got warmed up, until he got up to speed, and just to try to avoid Joe's punching power. And his strategy was to, you know, take Lewis into deep waters, you know, bring him, take him into the 10th, 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th round, you know, and just keep outboxing him. And, you know, if an opportunity presented itself to go for, a knockout. He really thought he could knock out Joe Lewis. You know, he, he, Billy thought that Joe was a little past his prime by 41. He had pegged Lewis's prime as 38. You know, we knocked out Schmeling, and 39 we knocked out Galento, two-ton Tony Galento. Um, so he thought Lewis was a little past it. And Lewis also had been on what they called the Bum of the Month campaign, where he fought uh, six fights in as many months. And that was done by Mike Jacobs to, you know, try to bring in as much money as possible prior to what everyone expected was going to be America's entrance into the war, where the title would basically be frozen after that. So Billy thought 
that Joe's bum of the month campaign had kind of left him stale, you know, and over overworked. Um, and he would say, you know, I I can knock this guy out. You know, he had seen Lewis hurt by other fighters, and he said that, um, you know, his whole thing was, you know, I don't want to just beat Joe Lewis. You know, I want to beat him at his own game, which was knockouts. And he said, you know, someday when I'm walking with my wife on Ocean City, New Jersey boardwalks, people will stop and say, you know, there goes Billy Kahn, who not only beat Joe Lewis, there goes Billy Kahn, who knocked out Joe Lewis. So how did the fight unfold? Uh, kind of according to Billy's plans. Uh, he lost the first couple of rounds. Um, Joe... You know, kind of beat a steady tattoo on, on Billy's rib. And you, when you watch the fight, you can see that Billy was a little nervous at the beginning because now he's actually facing this guy, you know, for the first time in the ring. And as I said, Luce's, you know, appearance in the ring and his reputation literally scared many opponents. Um, and Billy wasn't scared, but he was cautious. He knew what he was dealing with. Um... So he drops the first couple of rounds to Joe. Uh, third round, he starts to turn it around. He starts to gain confidence. He's, you know, he's up to speed now. He outboxes Lewis in rounds three and four. Uh, Lewis comes back, wins the fifth round, and then Billy goes on a string where he wins um, four rounds in a row. And he's ecstatic at this point. He goes back to his corner. He's, he's telling uh, his cornerman, hey, I got this guy. You know, he's... Uh, He's openly taunting Lewis. You know, he'd, he'd jab Lewis and say, hey, how'd you like that one, Joe? You know, or, um, you know, he was, Joe would land a good punch and Billy would smirk at him. You know, he, he was smiling, uh, laughing in the ring, you know, which is unheard of when you're fighting Joe Lewis. I mean, who, you know, people in there fighting for their lives are trying to survive. And here's Billy. It looks like he's, you know, having a great time in there. And he was because he was carrying out his fight plan. And he was winning. Um, you know, Lewis came back, took the 10th round. And then Billy wins rounds 11 and 12. And in the 12th, lands two left hooks that stagger Lewis. And Joe is literally grabbing Billy to stay upright, trying to hold on. And the crowd at the polo grounds is in an uproar. Um, you know, and Billy bounces back to his corner. He's there, I'm going to knock this guy out the next round. So how did the fight end up? Um, interestingly enough, at the same time that Billy was boasting to his quarterman that, you know, I'm going to knock this guy out in the 13th, Jack Blackburn was screaming at Lewis in his corner that you're too far behind. You can't win a decision. Um, some of the, the Lewis was trailing on all three scorecards um, by as many as uh, eight rounds to four after 12. Uh, another judge had it 7-5. So all Billy really had to do was win the last couple of rounds and he was going to win the decision because there was no way Joe could could win at that point unless he knocked him out. And that's what Blackburn was telling him. You've got to knock this guy out. Uh, you're too far behind. And Joe recalled in an interview years later saying, you know what, forget it. Forget the decision. I'm just going to go out and knock him out this round. So they both went out for the 13th looking for a KO. And uh, when, they, when they first went out and met each other in the 13th round, Billy 
told Joe, hey, Joe, you're in for a fight tonight. And Joe's like, yeah, I know it. But then he, Joe said later that he thought to himself, we'll see. We'll see what happens. And, um, you know, the fight went back and forth in the 13th. And then uh, Joe was a, a smart guy. He was a strategist in the ring. He could see what opponents were doing and could figure out ways to combat it. So he had picked up a flaw in Billy's style that uh, he felt left Billy open for a counter right. So Billy started to throw a left hook, and Joe thought, this is it. This is what I was waiting for. So he stepped inside the left hook, hit Billy with a right that froze him, and then you know, followed up with a barrage of punches. And still Billy fought back. He took the blows, fought back. Um, the Polo Grounds crowd was like on his feet, going crazy. These two guys, these two great fighters, going toe-to-toe -to -toe in the center of the ring. But Lewis's punching power was just too much. And he connected with some more punches on Billy. And uh, the final 13 punches of the 13th round were all landed by Lewis. And they were all dynamite blows right on Billy's jaw. And he, uh, a final right hand, put him on the canvas. And... Uh, it looked like he was going to be counted out. But at the count of eight, he, he started to get up, and his gloves were clearing the canvas when the referee shouted 10. And at that point, there were just two seconds left in the round. So if Billy could have survived that round, he would have had a full minute's respite to come back for the 14th. And that's where a lot of people say, you know, what would have happened if Billy, first of all, if Billy's gloves actually cleared the canvas, he wouldn't have been counted out. And there was no way in two seconds Joe could have gone across the ring and relaunched his attack. So Billy would have survived the 13th, and then now what happens in the 14th and in the 15th rounds? That's one of the great debates about this fight. Well, we've been speaking with Ed Groover. He is the author of Joe Lewis versus Billy Kahn, Boxing's Unforgettable Summer of 1941. Thank you for speaking with me. Thank you very much. Listeners like you make PCN programming possible. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN Select app. To learn more about PCN's mission and to support PCN with a donation, visit PCNTV.com. This link and others can be found in our show notes. We appreciate your support.